Let's read together Lord's Day 5. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we, by ourselves, make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our catechism provides us with a roadmap of the way of salvation. In the past weeks, we've been busy dealing with Lord's Days concerning our sins and misery. In the end, we found ourselves standing before the judgment seat of God, facing a just penalty. That penalty is very severe. We deserve the everlasting punishment of body and soul. We've come to a dead end. We've exhausted all our excuses. There we stand, guilty and condemnable. All we can do is humbly bow before our God, confessing our wrongdoing. Of ourselves, there's no way out of our miserable state. Yet in Lord's Day 5, we've arrived at the second part of the Catechism, the section dealing with our deliverance. If I asked you how you were saved from your sins and misery, you would likely answer by pointing to the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's a good answer. Yet our catechism does not come to this answer immediately. It goes through six other questions and answers before the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned. And there's good reason for that. It is that our catechism not only wants to teach us through whom we are saved, but also about the way of salvation. The Bible often speaks about the different ways we can follow. Psalm 1 speaks about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. In Matthew 7, Jesus speaks about the way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to life. It's striking that in the book of Acts, the gospel of salvation is often called the way. In Acts 9, verse 2, we read of how when Paul was a persecutor of the church, he went to Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In Acts 16, verse 17, we read of the demon-possessed slave girl who followed Paul and his companions, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
The fact that Christians were called followers of the way shows that God has ordained a specific way in which we are delivered from our sins. Lord's Day 5 concentrates on the way of salvation. Its goal is to help us understand how we can escape God's punishment for our sins. It focuses on the fact that God is a righteous judge and that he requires that payment be made for our sins. It investigates various possibilities to see how this payment might be made. In the end, it points out the way in which we can escape God's wrath and again be received into his favor. So Lord's Day 5 teaches us the way of our deliverance. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God reveals to us the way we can escape his wrath and again be received into favor. We'll see that God requires a payment that we cannot make and that God provides a way of escape that we would never have imagined. Question 12 of our catechism links the first Lord's Day about our deliverance with the previous Lord's Days about our sins and misery. It asks, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and again be received into favor? Please note that this question begins with an admission of guilt. In Lord's Day 4, we've dealt with man's various attempts to escape God's righteous judgment. We've dealt with the excuses that God isn't fair, that maybe he'll just let us go, and that he is merciful. And yet we came to a dead end. We deserve God's punishment. God would be completely justified in writing us off, in having nothing more to do with us, in condemning us to hell forevermore. You see, beloved, in paradise, when God forbade Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he warned them, when you eat of it, you will surely die. The death God spoke about was not just physical death. Much more was involved. By eating of this tree, man cut himself off from God. He broke the close communion he had with God. He made himself liable to everlasting punishment of body and soul. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. The way back was guarded by cherubim with a flaming sword. And in their children we see that the fruits of sin are indeed death. In the first generation after the fall, we see that Cain killed his brother Abel. With the fall into sin, God's curse has fallen on man. His justice requires that our sin be punished with the most severe that is with everlasting punishment of body and soul. In the Bible, we see that at times God pours out his wrath on man's sin. In the time before the flood, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness had become, that the earth was corrupt and full of violence. The Lord sent Noah as a preacher of righteousness to call the people to repentance. When they did not repent, God destroyed the earth with a flood. In the same way, the Lord destroyed those wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry against these cities was very great, and their sin was grievous. 
There were not even 10 righteous people in Sodom. We know that. For God promised Abraham that if there were 10 righteous people within the city, he would spare all the people for their sake. The point, beloved, is that we serve a righteous judge. His justice requires that sin be paid for. Also, our sins require payment. If that payment is not made, then we too will come under God's judgment. Then we too will ultimately be punished for our sins. We'll suffer temporal and eternal death. Beloved, we need to be convicted of this reality. Often our sinful nature is unwilling to humble itself before God. We don't like to admit that we deserve to have God's wrath poured out on us. We need to learn to take the words of David on our lips. He confessed, O God, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For it's only when we truly know our sins and misery that we begin to seek a way out. It's only when we're cornered and know that we're liable to judgment that we try and find a way of escape. Please note that we seek more than just an escape from punishment. Many people would be quite satisfied if they could find a way to escape hell. Yet we need to realize what hell really is. What makes hell such a terrible judgment is that in hell, man is completely cut off from God. Hell is being handed over to Satan and his dominion forevermore. Jesus suffered hellish agony in those three hours of darkness on the cross when his father abandoned him. The most terrible consequence of the fall into sin was that man was cut off from God. And so it's not enough to just escape God's wrath. What we really need is a way to be restored to God's favor. For what would life be like if we couldn't live it with God? Isn't that what life is really all about? Communion with the Lord? So we see that the way of salvation includes not just escape from punishment, but also a restoration to God's favor. And so we cry out, how can we escape God's righteous judgment? Is there any way to be restored to his favor? What opportunities exist for our deliverance? Our catechism answers those questions by stating, God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or by another. This answer makes clear the way of salvation. We can only be saved from our sins if payment is made for them. That's what a righteous God requires for us to be restored to his favor. We see the way of salvation is through payment. Our catechism asks, can we ourselves make that payment? And the answer is certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Our catechism clearly spells out how we cannot make the payment required for us to be saved. It's something we often struggle with. 
We confess that we live by grace alone. We acknowledge that as sinful people, we cannot contribute to our salvation. And yet, beloved, so often we try. How much don't you give for the Lord? How much don't you contribute towards this kingdom? can often be a dangerous thing. For in the process, we so easily think that we add something to God. We think that we will please Him with our good deeds. How often do we become like the Pharisee in the parable in Luke 18? How often does it happen that we compare our lives with others and think we're pretty good while looking down on others because of the sins they commit? It's human nature to want to think well of ourselves. But the Bible makes it clear that we're not good. Yet in order to feel good about ourselves, we knock down others so we appear better than them. We're not like many people living out there in society around us, people living ungodly and immoral lives. We worship God regularly. We give of our first fruits. We send our children to Christian schools. We live generally decent lives, at least outwardly. Like the parable in Luke 18, it's so easy for us to be quite pleased with ourselves because we're not like other sinful people because of the good works we do. Yeah, beloved, let's never adopt that kind of attitude. If we rely on ourselves, we are never going to be justified. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus' audience would have identified closely with the Pharisee. The Pharisees were respected because of their strict adherence to the law. Tax collectors were hated. They not only charged you taxes, but they were working for the enemy, for the Romans. On top of that, they were often crooked, cheating you by charging you too much tax. The conclusion of this parable would have been shocking to the people of Jesus' day. They would agree. It was okay for the tax collector to come to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yet they would never have thought that Jesus would conclude his parables by saying that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. They didn't understand. We're saved by grace, and not by doing the works of the law. They would never have predicted that the so-called righteous Pharisee was not saved because he depended on himself and not on God for his salvation. In Exodus 32, we read of how Israel sinned by worshiping the golden calf. The Lord's anger was aroused against his people and he sought to destroy them. Moses went up on the mountain to try and make atonement for the people's sins. He confesses the people's sin, and he pleads with God to forgive. Moses speaks of his willingness to have his name blotted out of God's book of life. He offers up his life for the sake of the people. He tries to be the mediator, the deliverer of his people. But God doesn't accept his offer. For Moses does not meet up to God's standard for the type of Savior we really need. 
Later we see that because of his own sin, Moses was not even permitted to enter the promised land. The reason we cannot pay for our own sins is because we are sinful people. Our catechism emphasizes that instead of being able to pay for our sins, we add to them daily. In Psalm 143, David pleads with God, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. In Romans 3, Paul writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. And a little later, there is no one who does good, not even one. We're like people who cannot even afford to pay the interest on the great debt that we owe. Instead of going forward each day, our debt increases. Spiritually, we're bankrupt. We cannot make the payment required of us. And so the Catechism continues with the next question. Since payment must be made and since we cannot make it, can any mere creature pay for us? Again, the Catechism comes with a definite answer. No. Let's investigate why not. The primary reason relates to God's justice. God had said that if man sinned, he would die. It wouldn't be fair if God poured out his wrath against man's sins on another creature. He would not be satisfied with another creature taking man's place. As the Lord said in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, the soul who sins is the one who will die. You might ask, but how about the animals that Israel sacrificed in the Old Testament period? Did they not take the place of man? It's true that God commanded his people to offer up various sacrifices before him. Yet, these animals offered as sacrifices didn't pay for the people's sins. They were no more than symbols of the atonement that was to come. You see, beloved, animals only have a body. There's no way that a creature that has only a body can make payment for man's sins. For we were created with a body and a soul. How about the angels, you might ask? Is there a possibility angels might make payment for our sins? No. Angels are spiritual beings. They don't have a body. The point is that man was created with body and soul. That he sinned with both body and soul. Only someone who is a human being, who is composed of body and soul, can pay for our sins. Now that leaves us with a real problem. We've seen that we as sinful human beings cannot pay for our sins. We've tried to go the route of substitution to see if another creature could pay for us. But that too proved fruitless. God will not punish another creature for the sins of mankind. Is there then no way of escaping God's punishment and again being received into favor? Yes, there is. We deal with this in our second point, in that we see that God provides an escape we would never have imagined. From a human perspective, there's no way out of our sins and misery. And yet the glorious message of the gospel is that God finds a way for full payment to be made for our sins. Question 15 points us in the direction we should look 
It asks, what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? The answer is, one who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time true God. We know our mediator must be a true man because God has decreed. He'll only be satisfied if a man pays for the sin mankind committed. At the same time, we know that our deliverer must be a righteous man. He must be sinless. For we discover that one who is himself a sinner cannot even pay for his own sins. At the same time, our Savior needs to be true God. There's no way that a simple creature could bear the burden of God's wrath against all our sins. Where are we going to find this kind of mediator and deliverer? One who is a true man without sin and at the same time true God? That kind of Savior doesn't just grow on trees. What we need is some kind of superman. The good news of salvation is that God has provided us with exactly the mediator we need. Where there is no escape from God's punishment, God himself finds a way. Where there is no one to serve as our deliverer, God provided one for us. He sent his son in human flesh to be our savior. Who would have imagined it? That God would provide a mediator that perfectly suited our requirements. Yeah, beloved, that's what the good news of salvation is all about. The Bible teaches us that when we, when we were stuck, God gave us a hand. When there was no escape, God opened the way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ came into this world as a perfect sacrifice, ready to be offered on the cross to make payment for our sins. The author of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 2. He points out in verse 11 that both Christ, who makes men holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. His point is that Christ shares the same human nature as us. It's made clear in verse 14, where it says that we are made of flesh and blood, and so Christ himself likewise shared in our humanity. Christ's unique conception and birth made it possible for him to represent us before God. As a truly righteous man, he would be able to cover our sins with his perfect sacrifice. Already in the Old Covenant, Isaiah prophesied about how the Messiah would come as a sin offering for God's people. He speaks in Isaiah 53 about the Messiah being a lamb. Isaiah says, Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Isaiah goes on to say that he was cut off from the land of the living, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to make his soul a guilt offering. We see that Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah being a lamb 
whom God would make an offering for sin. When John the Baptist saw the Lord, Je the Lord Jesus approaching, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The reason John could say this was because of the unique manner in which Christ was conceived and born. Jesus came into this world as a pure sacrifice, undefiled by sin. Peter refers to this in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says that you are ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. The point, beloved, is this. Our salvation depends on Christ being an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. He cannot serve as our mediator if God will not accept his sacrifice as payment for our sins. But Jesus Christ came into this world fit for service. For he was born in the line of Adam, but not included in Adam's sin. Because of Christ's innocence and holiness, the sacrifice of his body is acceptable to God. And so we see, beloved, that when the way of salvation was blocked, God opened it. When we were doomed to death and destruction, God revealed his grace. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he explains the way of salvation. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus testified about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beloved, how wondrous God's plan of salvation really is. When there was no escape, God opened the way. He sent his Son to be our mediator and deliverer. In Jesus Christ, God has not just provided an escape from judgment, from the punishment of hell. In Christ, God has opened the way for us to again be restored to his favor. Through Christ's payment for our sins, we may have communion with God. We may share in fellowship with our Father in heaven, now and forevermore. By faith, let us take hold of God's promises and make them our own. Let us believe that the way of salvation has been opened by our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be followers of the way. For it's only in Jesus Christ that we have life. Amen.